Hi y'all, you're listening to In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile. I'm a spun counter guy. Thanks for stopping by. Music journalist and author Bill Adler is back with us to talk a little more about his memory of the history of hip-hop. In this episode, we'll touch on salt and pepper Run DMC, The Fat Boys, Boogie Boys, Houdini, and others, in addition to the issues of mob activity in the music industry and anti-Semitism. Adler was the director of publicity at Def Jam Recordings and is the author of Tougher Than Leather, The Rise of Run DMC. Well, you just found out you lost your job. When I was going through your archives, uh, I came across a couple articles regarding uh, Joe Robinson, who was one of the founders of Sugar Hill Records, and right. how he had had uh, some kind of trouble with the mob. Um, uh-huh. And this was in regards to some kind of distribution deal he had done with MCA. Do you remember what was the details about that? I, I think it was it was pretty well known that Joe Robinson was basically partnered up with Morris Levy. And Morris was a guy who worked in the music business his whole life, but he was also mob-affiliated his whole life. And uh, so uh, there was a story written, I think, for Vanity Fair, and I'm trying to think of the writer's name, but, um, you know, at this point, the article's 30 years old. I I recommend it to you. You you could maybe find that and post it. But it it was very detailed. You know, let me just say this. You know, American showbiz, as best as I can uh, dope it out, well, let's just say, you know, fairly early on, going back to the 1920s, there was a, a pretty intimate connection between show business and organized crime. Mm-hmm. And it's because what happened was, uh, there, you know, alcohol was banned in the 20s. So uh, the appetite for entertainment didn't die with the ban. The appetite for alcohol didn't die, actually. That's the key thing. So, the, you know, the mob opened up these speakeasies, and they were illegal, but, you know, basically the police winked at them. Mm-hmm. And so people would go out so that they could drink. And, uh, you know, the, the mobsters figured out pretty quickly, I think, that if they wanted to keep people uh, in the speakeasy and spending money on drink, uh, it would help them to have entertainment. And that was really one of the inspirations for modern show business as we know it today. And it turns out that a number of, you know, very important figures uh, in the history of showbiz were mob affiliated. Mm. You know, one of them was was Joe Glazer, G-L-A-S-E-R, Glazer, uh, you know, who uh, was, I think, part of the Chicago mob or one of the Chicago mobs. And he also turned out to be, you know, a very influential uh, artist manager including, you know, for, for Louis Armstrong for, uh, you know, 40 years. And uh, Morris Levy, I think, was another one of those guys. You know, I can't tell you the name of the crime family with whom he was affiliated. But, um, you know, he ran uh, roulette records through the 50s and into the 60s. And before that, he founded Birdland, mm-hmm. which was this, you know, hugely uh, influential uh, jazz nightclub in Times Square named after Charlie Parker. 
So, uh, you know, having said all of that, uh, you know, I don't think either of these guys was a saint. But I do think, you know, that they, they uh, uh, put in a lot of hard work when it came to credible artists. So there's that. Mm-hmm. And likewise, you know, so you've got Joe Robinson, and somehow he's affiliated with Morris, and, and you know, he gets funding for his record label for Morris Levy. It's not a happy thing. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know that many of the artists who, who recorded for Sugar Hill over time, you know, were they fairly paid? Were they paid the royalties and whatnot? Were they fairly accounted to? You know, I, I don't know about it. I think it was very iffy at best. If you step back, you know, from, uh, you know, the artists themselves to the work that was done at Sugar Hill, um, it, it's, uh, you know, astonishing. You know, in the course of four years or so, five years, they recorded, you know, a huge trove of very, very important rap records. And, you know, it's, it's, it's to their credit. So another odd thing I came across in your archive was this ventriloquist act, Wayne and Charlie. So how did that figure into, were they with Sugar Hill Records or they were somehow affiliated? Yeah. I don't remember the record itself, I'm afraid. But, you know, the the idea of it was, you know, it, it's amusing, but also it's not, you know, it's not out of, out of the question. You know, you know, rap was uh, open to players from everywhere, musicians from everywhere. And the idea that a young black ventriloquist would I- invent a rapping dummy, uh, you know, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What were your memories of the Fat Boys? You know, the Fat Boys, you know, I, I got to know them a, a little bit because, uh, you know, early on when Run DMC was first going on national tours, uh, the very first Fresh Fest in uh, the fall of 1984, uh, you know, had Run, C- uh, Run DMC at the top of the bill and the Fat Boys, you know, also on the bill. So, you know, I, I got to hang out with them a little bit at that time. And, um, you know, they were they were congenial. I can't say that, you know, I ever, uh, you know, got close to them, but they made very good records from the very beginning, records that were uh, produced and or co-produced by Curtis Blow. Now there was just one day that I will never forget. I got jail for something that I'll always regret. It was 12 o'clock midnight and I wanted a snack. So I headed downstairs, got the fridge was packed. And when I People don't give Kurt enough credit for his work as a producer, in addition to his work as a rapper. But he produced uh, a lot of the Fat Boys hits, and they, you know, as I said, they were wonderful records, and they were very popular for you know a few years. They were also a lot of fun on stage, and you know, as I think about it, probably the Human Beatbox, uh, Darren Robinson was his given name, was probably uh, the key figure on stage. You know, he was a very overweight guy, uh, kind of a uh, cartoonish looking and you know uh, amusing in that way on stage you know 
in effect, he was kind of like, you know, uh, to the fat boys, what Flavor was to Public Enemy. You know, he was going to bring he was going to bring comic relief to it all. And uh, not, not to say that the other two guys didn't also have a sense of humor. Uh, you know, having said all of that, you know, Darren died very young. I don't I don't think he made it to thirty, and he died at the uh, you know uh, you know weighing you know some absurd number. He weighed six hundred pounds, and he went out. I know that they initially were called the Disco Three. And, of course, somebody at a record company said, hey, wouldn't it be better if they were called the Fat Boys? Uh, Did they ever talk about resenting that change? Well, I don't know. I mean, it wasn't somebody at a record label. It was Charlie Stetler. Charlie Stetler, their manager, who was uh, from Switzerland, and somehow ended up managing the Fat Boys. He took them with him to Switzerland and, uh, you know, was hanging out with them and watching them uh, eat too much. And he said something, you know, critical to them. You guys are just fat boys. And then something clicked and he decided, well, that's that's who you're going to be from now on. You're going to be the fat boys. No more disco three. And, uh, you know, the guys rolled with it. And, you know, in fact, you know, that, that was their uh, uh, trademark in effect. That was their lane. And I have a slight problem that I couldn't solve since I was a tire. See, I overate at a steady pace rate. Yeah, I'm overweight, but it ain't no thing because I'm always fresh and guaranteed to pass any MC contest. Another group that we talked about the first time that I had you on was Run DMC. Now, we talked specifically about their uh, Christmas and Hollis record and your involvement in that. But what are some other memories you have of working with them? Because you were pretty heavily involved. Well, yeah, I was Run DMC's publicist, you know, from you know almost the moment that I started at Rush because Run DMC was already killing by then. You know, I started working at, at Rush Artist Management, you know, a few months before Def Jam put out its first singles. And uh, but Run DMC was burning by that time. Uh, in in the summer of 1984, they'd put out their first singles in uh, 1983, and they put out uh, their first full album in the spring of '84, and the album was blowing up. You know, by the time you know I came aboard, and you know it was it was very very exciting working with them. You know, they were young. You know, 1984; these guys are 19, 20, 21 years old, and uh, just blazing. And it you know it's it, it it was one of the things that was you know completely astonishing about Run DMC. I think is that it, they had almost no kind of uh, you know period where they were kind of wandering around in the woods or whatever. You know, they weren't obscure for very long. Their rec- Records took off more or less immediately, and you know it was it was Run DMC's success that uh, opened the door for the flood of rappers that followed them. And I don't mean to you know uh, diminish you know what are the, what happened in the Sugar Hill era and you know the importance of the Sugar Hill Gang and Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five and Spoonie G and the Treacherous Three and on on on. But the thing about Run DMC, one of the key things I think in retrospect is that it was a point of pride for them to identify with with Queens and with Hollis Queens in particular. And it was a kind of a brave thing for them to do because it was huge pushback from the rappers who preceded them, who staked their claim on Harlem and the Bronx and the Bronx in particular. So the very idea that anybody would jump up and start rapping from, you know, any place other than the Bronx was deeply offensive to them. them. And Run DMC confronted with that kind of resistance. Run DMC just said, fuck you. You know, this is 
is where we're from and we're going to claim it and uh, roll with it. And Run DMC's example opened the door for everybody else from anywhere who wanted to rap. And that's just what the hell happened. subculture that started uh, indeed in the outer boroughs of New York City migrated to Queens and then to Long Island and to Miami and to Oakland and you know to Los Angeles and you know on and on and on and then beyond uh, America's borders you know our uh, you know Run DMC uh, played England for the first time uh, at Christmas time in 1984 and you know they would continue uh, to tour widely Run DMC you know I don't think you know it was it was you know sometime in 1985 they, they went to Japan for the first time, you know, and having said all of that, you know, it's not to say that, you know, kind of more broadly, uh, rap's appeal, uh, you know, huge popular appeal wasn't evident from the very beginning, you know, starting with, you know, let's say the Sugar Hill Gang, you know, with Houdini, you know, we, we managed Houdini, you know, they're making hit records by 82, 83, and, you know, they toured Germany and Italy during those years and were written about um, in, in those languages in those years. But Run DMC, I think, was really the breakthrough, and not least because they started to make videos as well, right? And so 1984, they made their first video for uh, the song called Rock Box. Way to demonstrate all the super death rhymes that I create. I'm a wizard of a word. That's what you heard. Then anything else is quite absurd. They surfed it up. To, to MTV, which you know had been rolling for a few years then. The thing about MTV is that it was uh, uh, just kind of a mirror of, or a, a television version of what was called AOR radio, which was you know rock radio at the time, so-called album-oriented rock radio. But behind the scenes, we used to call it uh, you know apartheid-oriented uh, 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 radio because uh, the programming was strictly white artists, no black artists allowed and run dmc through mtv uh, you know bashed down that door you know and, and you know to begin with they they integrated um uh mtv uh to the extent that you know it, it led to you know run dmc i mean i could go on here let me you know it's ridiculous let me just say you know run dmc liberated, integrated uh, MTV, and that led to the much wider integration or reintegration of uh, popular music in America and throughout the world. Rock and roll's uh, uh, influence, racial influence, uh, in the 50s, you know, in effect kind of predated, you know, the 60s era civil rights movement. You know, it was, you know, there was something about rock and roll that pulled in folks of all stripes and somehow it was more or less okay, right? And that blossomed through the 60s and then it was shut down in the 70s by AOR radio and then rap, mostly in the persons of Run DMC, reintegrated popular music in America starting in the 80s. Yo, D, that's me, the king, the MC. Rhyme get mine on a T.O.P. Can another MC ever Now, uh, Run uh, eventually would become a minister. Do you remember if that caused any kind of conflict with the group? Were they going to have to stop rapping about certain things or... Uh, do you remember anything from that, or even do you even know the story behind his decision? I don't know. 
you know, I'm not, I'm not, not a genius about it. I just know that run dove into it uh, pretty deeply and pretty quickly, and at least for a long time, it didn't seem to interfere with. You know the work that he wanted to do with Run DMC. Mm-hmm. You know he, he managed to to square that circle. You know, be a rapper and be a, a, a minister at the same time, which is kind of how and why he he took on the name uh, the Reverend Run, right. Rev Run. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I I don't believe that he saw any conflict there. Now me and T we had a jam. We used to kick it with Jay. He was the baddest man in the U.S. of A. He had a rack of black jackets and some rackets to play. Salt and pepper. You know, one of the things about salt and pepper, the thing that, that I, I remember you know, speaks to my own particular experience with them, which goes back to uh, the early months of 1989 when I helped to organize uh, a protest against the Grammy Awards because of their tepid embrace of rap music and great rap records. You know, uh, the um, nominations came out in, in uh, the fall of. 88 for the awards that would be given in, you know, whatever it was, February or or March of 1989. They finally uh, invented a category for a rap record, best rap single, I think it was. And some of our guys were uh, nominated. LL Cool J and and, uh, uh, Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince were nominated among the other five nominees. But we weren't invited. None of the rappers was invited to perform on the television show, which to me was the key thing. And so, you know, I said, listen, screw it. We shouldn't, you know, cooperate with it. We should boycott. And so, you know, uh, Will and Jeff were fine with it. Uh, LL was fine with it. And we didn't manage salt and pepper, but they, they climbed aboard as well and also boycotted the Grammy Awards. And I'll always be grateful to them for that. Houdini. You know, Houdini, very, very lovable. And, you know, at this point, you know, uh, probably underrated. Yeah. But they, they had uh, uh, wonderful hits very early on. Now the party didn't start till I walked in. And I probably won't leave until the thing ends. But in the meantime, and in between time, if you work your thing, then I work mine. We they uh, were produced uh, by Larry Smith, who, you know, uh, kind of wore two hats at that time. I mean, he, he was a solo producer of all of Houdini's hits, but he was also co-producer with Russell Simmons of all of Run DMC's hits, uh, you know, for, you know, the period between, you know, with Houdini, he worked with them from, I don't know, 83 through 87 or so. And he worked with Run DMC uh, from, you know, I guess the same period, more or less, 83 through 87, 88. Did great, great work uh, on behalf of both groups. A lot of producers, uh, you know, have a kind of a a signature style. And so it'll, uh, you know, you'll always be able to tell that, that, you know, this producer worked on this record, no matter who the artist was. But, um, you know, Larry had more range than that, I think. And so, you know, Run DMC's records sounded like Run DMC and Houdini sounded like Houdini. And, you know, it was to the credit of both uh, that, you know, they were they were distinct that way. But, you know, listen, they, they were great. You know, I, I you know, I re- remained friends with all of them. You know, I'm still in touch with Grandmaster D, their wonderful DJ, and with Jalil Hutchins, who was 
you know, one of the two rappers and also the guy who wrote most of the rhymes. And, you know, I, uh, of course, um, you know, it's, it's a sad thing to note at this point that uh, uh, Ecstasy, uh, you know, died, I don't know, two, three years ago at this point. But, um, yeah, they were very lovable guys. Right. And, and, you know, they, they, they had a lot of success and they earned it. This goes don't open to after dark And it ain't till 12 till the party really starts And I always had to be home by 10 Right before the fun was about to begin Do you remember a group called the Boogie Boys? They had one hit. What was their big hit? <laughs> uh, Fly Girl. The guys are on a strap. She tends to act funny. She's got gazelle and a bag to Fly Girl. I want to be with you. Okay, the Boogie Boys and Fly Girl, a great, great record and i think maybe that's all most of us ever heard of them yeah but that record to this day you know i'm very glad you brought it up because i was driving around with my kids in the car uh, just a couple days ago as we traveled to get someplace for christmas and you know they have their their little handheld devices and they're you know connected with one service or another and they could have um uh, called up any song in the world uh <laughs> but mostly we're listening to stuff that's recorded you know, here in the doggone 21st century, and I'm thinking to myself, what was that record I love so doggone much in the 80s? And the answer is the Boogie Boys, <laughs> Fly Girl, you know? And I, I hadn't even thought, I, 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 I thought of it, but you know, old as I am, I couldn't, I couldn't remember exactly what it was. I'm gonna tell you and I'm gonna tell your listeners, that's a great, great record. Yeah, it samples uh, Let's Go All The Way. The name of the group escapes me, but it's the beat of uh, Let's Go All The Way. We had talked on, I think, the second interview we did. We talked extensively about the film Wild Style. And one thing I meant to ask you, and I kind of forgot about it, but it actually came up recently, this issue was... Uh, I, I'm from the Midwest, so we only knew of New York what we saw on TV or uh, you know heard on records and things like that. And uh, so I think my perception of the, like the hip hop world was initially just all black. But when you watch Wild Style, I, there's it's uh, almost kind of dominated by uh, Hispanics or more specifically Puerto Ricans, especially the dancers, the the the, um, the break dancers, the b boys, and um, I don't. I can't remember what the issue was, uh, or who who did this. But apparently, there was some uh, recent recollection of the early days of hip hop, and whoever did it had written out completely uh, the Puerto Rican element. And so I remember Crazy Legs from the Rocksteady Crew had you know made yeah. a vid video like, hey, you know that's not how we remember it when we were there. You know, what's your memories of that? Like, why did it seem to to go from a, a black and Hispanic thing? to almost purely black, at least how it's portrayed in the mainstream media. You know, the thing about hip hop is that um, it was multifaceted. And, you know, really, there's a question in my mind about, you know, the extent to which uh, these separate, uh, you know, creative activities should have been uh, all lumped together under the title of hip hop. And mm -hmm. I think the Bambada was one of the guys who did it. But let's just say this: most of the most of the early rappers and DJs were were black, and most of the early break dancers were were black and brown, mm -hmm. and uh, the graffiti artists were even more um, 
what's the word I want? They're more, you know, more diverse than that. So there were a lot of actual card-carrying white people, white kids, who were involved with the graffiti scene. And, you know, within those small communities, there was never any problem with any, uh, any of that. You know, the diversity wasn't a problem. It's just, you know, are, are you down with this activity? And um, so uh, not everybody knows uh, about the interconnectedness of these subcultures and not everybody knows uh, uh, and not everybody cares for that matter you know mm-hmm. there are plenty of people who are you know devoted to breakdancing who don't care about rap you know I, likewise you know I remember talking to you know Lady Pink who was a, a, a graffiti artist one of the few women who did that and you know she's a she's a Latina and uh, also she does not you know, care at all, or she did not care at all about rap music, not at all. And she, w- and she didn't mind telling any- anybody who listened. Uh, and, and I don't think that detracted from the, uh, the appeal of her work. You know, as people learn more, uh, they'll, uh, you know, appreciate the diversity of it all. Having said all of that, I mean, you know, there's, there's no question that, you know, the, the, you know, hip hop culture writ large, you know, emerged from the outer boroughs and communities of color. That's a matter of fact. On our last interview, we had talked pretty extensively about this incident uh, involving Public Enemy, uh, specifically Professor Griff, but this also touched other in the Public Enemy camp, uh, about anti-Semitism. And I think we covered that pretty well, but when I was going through the archives uh, last night again, I kept finding more and more layers to this that... I couldn't help but think about, as we record this in the last days of 2022, you know, Kanye West has been in the news for some of his uh, pretty uh, disparaging comments about uh, Jewish folks, and uh, Whoopi Goldberg just a few days ago was in, in hot water again for saying something about the Holocaust. And so when all this came up again with Kanye West, did your brain automatically go back to those times uh, when you were trying to not only promote public enemy, but also trying to, uh, as a Jewish person yourself, trying to find your place in all of that, we'll say. Right, right, right. Well, uh, first of all, let me say this. I don't think you have to be Jewish to oppose anti-Semitism. Sure. You know, any, any more than you have to be black to oppose racism. But, you know, with, with all of that said, you know, the stuff with Kanye, um, you know, it, in fact, it did not make me think of public enemy. You know, it made me think of, of, you know, Kanye and his whole history and what, you know, I see as his, you know, kind of uh, unraveling. And, um, you know, I don't even know if he, you know, for all the, the crazy anti-Semitic things he said, you know, I don't know that, you know, he, he's an anti-Semite. Uh, I, I just think he's he's lost his mind, you know, and, and uh, you know, somehow, you know, he's very Trump-like. He feels victimized somehow. He's had, you know, he's tremendously creative. He's a genius. And, uh, you know, the records he's made are going to outlive him, thankfully. You know, even so, you know, it's, it's not enough for him. Uh, he feels aggrieved and, you know, he's going to search around for people to blame for, you know, his hurt feelings. And among them are going to be some Jews. Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe, 
uh, it has something to do with the fact that you know he's he's you know worked within the record industry and he's worked on the rap side and there are notable you know uh, Jewish folks you know in the, in that space and they include you know folks uh, you know who work closely with Kanye. I think it's probably just convenient to him. Uh, you know, to, uh, you know, think conspiratorially, you know, how is it that, you know, this great genius is, uh, you know, oppressed and can't achieve everything that he wants to achieve. And so he's going to go after the Jews. And uh, there's something uh, classic about it. You know, these kind of hatreds have, you know, nothing to do with reality, almost nothing to do with reality. You know, he's just, you know, flailing around for some explanation for, you know, his hurt feelings, and he's going to pick on the Jews. So, you know, I, I, to me, I think it speaks more to Kanye than to, to um, uh, you know, some of these larger issues. As for Whoopi Goldberg, you know, I don't, I don't even know if I'd heard, you know, what all she'd had to say. What did she say? Uh, she said that the Holocaust was not racially motivated because it was white on white crime or white on white ki- killing that that was not racially motivated. Well, all right, that's retarded. <laughs> Go ahead. I'm you sorry. know, and it's it's really it's it's really distressing. <laughs> I mean, this is a woman. You know, I ne- I never thought about you know kind of how and why. You know, this woman decided to call herself Whoopi Goldberg professionally. Obviously, that's not her birth name, but I, you know, this that's that's a, you know a kind of a Jew. It's a very Jewish thing, yeah. and she's rolled with it, and she's and she's you know made that brand her own. So you know that that speaks to you know some kind of an affinity with Jewish culture, you know. But you know, I think you know along those lines, you know, my uh, nickel's worth of advice to her would be to see, uh, you know. Uh, the racial aspect of this, this way, Jews are not white people. Jews are Semites. You know, our roots go back to the Middle East and Northern Africa. And, you know, with all of that said, you know, uh, Nazism and the anti-Semitism of the Nazis was absolutely racially motivated. And guess what? You know, you can say, you know, I mean, you know, race, race is just, um, you know, it's it's the flimsiest construct, and you know, let, let's take it out of, you know, the the realm of, you know, the Germans and the Jews. Let's think about the Russians and the Ukrainians right now. You know, the Russians very, very definitely think about all of this in racial terms. Mm-hmm. Right. And, uh, you know, they, they demonize the Ukrainians as others, you know, and, uh, you know, to the, it, it's really crucial for them to claim the Ukrainians as Russians. And to the extent that they're opposed, they're going to demonize the Ukrainians as 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 Nazis and, uh, you know, as others. And, you know, the, the stuff never ends. It never, never ends. Again, you know, why, you know, to go back to your original question, you know, why, you know, did, did Kanye make me think of, you know, the, 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 the blow up with Professor Griffin and Public Enemy? It did not. And, you know, one of the reasons is because this kind of hatred you know, it, it ebbs and flows, but it never disappears. Right. Never. Uh, and it's just, you know, uh, a fact of life here in the 21st century. You know, there's, you know, so anti-Semitism is on the rise. You know, I don't applaud it, but I'm not surprised by it. It's a hopeful thing to me that, you know, Kanye's been, you know, uh, uh, 
upbraided for this. Mm-hmm. And I take it that <laughs> Whoopi, although I didn't hear about this, I'm guessing that she's also faced some pushback for this ridiculous thing she said about, you know, the Holocaust. Right. Um, and, and even so, it doesn't mean that, you know, next month there won't be some brand new, you know, anti-Semitic spew and, and, and you know, and, and plenty of anti-black spew and on and on and on and on. You know, I'm waiting for the day when this stuff disappears. And, you know, I don't think it's going to happen. Here's the heaviest thing in the world for me. Ready? Mm-hmm. The golden rule. Okay. I have no religion. I'm born a Jew. I think of it basically as a racial identity, okay? But really, I have no, re- I have no religion. The only religion I, I adhere to is the golden rule, the golden rule. And it's called the golden rule because, uh, you know, a version of it one way or another, you know, springs up in virtually every culture around the world. Ready? Treat others as you would have them treat you. Mm. So simple to say, right? And yet, it's really the heaviest thing in the world. It's a heavy, heavy challenge to see people who don't look like you as your brothers, your sisters, et cetera, et cetera. But that's what has to happen ultimately. Or, you know, just, you know, this this kind of, uh, what I would call this fratricidal insanity is gonna end up destroying humanity. Uh, that's a, a, a Thursday morning sermon, you know, maybe, uh, prior, prior to Sunday. I do think that, you know, the natural uh, inclination of, uh, you know, uh, any human being is not to love his neighbor, but to fear his neighbor. And, you know, out of that fear will develop some hatred and wars and all of the rest of it. And, you know, listen, there's, it's so wild. There's a, the Wall Street subway station in New York City has, uh, you know, a platform on the wall of which it says over and over, there's this kind of repeated riff. It says, we're all different. We're all the same over and over and over again. If people could absorb that and and live according to it it would this would be a much more peaceful planet but you know you know there there are days when i'm not hopeful about it uh, well a lot of our behaviors are they come from that old instinct when we all lived in the jungle so to speak of survival yeah. you know so that makes total yeah. sense uh, that people tribe up uh and also like men's a lot of men's worst problems today come from you know our sex drives which again in the jungle made sense that's how the race survived or I shouldn't say race, how the how humanity survived, but um, sure. but now that we live in a civilized uh, world, we try to anyway. It, it it brings up a lot of problems. So again, you know, you know, treat others as you would have them treat you. You know, it's much much easier said than done. I understand that mostly people act out of fear. The idea that I mean, that's why Jesus was a revolutionary yeah. to talk about you know love as you know the key. Emotion and the and and the the key to how we should you know react to other human beings, it's um, it's a it's a challenge. It's a heavy heavy challenge, but I think it's it's the smart way to go. If you're still yearning to hear more of Mr. Adler's musical recollections. 
Check out our previous chats with the man on In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile, episodes 257 and 267. Or, if it's newer hip-hop you crave, check out my print interview with Cuban-born rapper Karen Commonway, whose track, Las Pantadas, will carry us out. And that can be found on thebrofisticate.com. In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile is produced by A Closet, A Pocket, and A Suitcase. You can find this podcast on iTunes, podbean.com, Spotify, and Stitcher. If you would like to send us some love letters, you can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. We'll see you next week. Whoa. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.